welcome back, or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're here for another exciting episode of The Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope everyone had a happy and safe start of the year. Hope everyone has their resolutions together, if that's something that you, you know, particularly enjoy or participate in. If not, more power to you, because you don't, you know, engage in useless goals that people... May or may not reach, but I never knew people had such, like, a opinion on resolutions until, you know, I was on social media this year. But I think like this year in particular had people a lot more retrospective after the shit show of 2020 that we had. So here's hoping that 2021 is much better, a lot more looser in terms of regulations people can enjoy, but also in general safe. Hopefully you can see through the end of this pandemic a lot less deaths and sadness. You know, I don't mind resolution because I feel like every other Monday, like anyway, I tell myself, you know, that I'm going to change something or I'm going to get my shit together. Start some kind of new habit or stop a bad habit. But most of the times it doesn't happen. But, you know, it comes with the territory of goal setting, you know. But, you know, I did set some personal OKRs, if you will. Little wink to my tech industry people, but... It's our first episode of 2021, and we're actually taking a flight over to the Ukraine, and we're starting off this episode with a new country that has yet to be represented in the podcast. It's actually a country that I've never been to, but I mean, I'm a go. But it's typically associated with, I guess, its big brother, former parent, I, I don't know. But I think you can't describe the relationship, but you know what country I'm talking about. When you think of the Ukraine, you think of the mother country of it all, Russia. Are the form their former mother country. So for this week's migration education, we're going to talk about Ukraine. Migration education is a part of the show where I provide a quick burst of information related to the field of migration and to the country that we're discussing later in the episode. So we're learning all about life in a country that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And actually, our guest was born when it was still under their domain, so he can actually speak to some of those experiences and growing up in the Soviet Union. With. You know, for some of us who were born after the fall of it, it seems like such a far and distant thing, like a thing of the past, but it's really not. It's, you know, it wasn't that long ago. But as we know, it officially fell in 1991, and a bunch of new countries then were recognized internationally and started to go through these processes of creating a national identity, being internationally recognized, you know, starting a culture, building an economy on their own that's independent. But as you may imagine, it's a very, very difficult process. And as Ukraine went through their nation building, people started to flow in and out of the country, mainly out, but it developed a problem that is now today recognized by their government and in the popular consciousness of the Ukraine. And it is indeed being perceived as a major issue. So I know we've covered the concept of brain drain a little bit on this podcast, and this is unfortunately another example of that. The Ukraine is losing some of their intellectual resources, and there's an outflow of workers, and that has an impact on economic and population development. In fact, Alexander Turchinov, the head of National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, at least at the time of this article, has described it as a migration tsunami. Yes, a tsunami. That's very drastic, but I don't think he's throwing that term around lightly. I think that's just really the state that migration is in in the Ukraine and where, and they see it as a major driver for where the country's going. But I think like a migration issue is akin to a company with a turnover issue and, you know, some headcount problems. It's not good for growth. It's a sign of some obvious problems and, you know, some push factors. And in the Ukraine, it is indeed affecting a large amount of their population. In fact, Tershinov estimated that up to 9 million Ukrainians out of a total population of 42 million 
annually work abroad for at least some part of the year. On top of that, 3.2 million have regular full-time work outside of the country. And of this, most of them do not plan to return back to the Ukraine. You see how this can become an issue. But what I personally find very interesting about the Ukraine's relationship with migration is that there's a lot going on and a lot of simultaneous push factors and pull factors. So there's a lot of countries nearby that are culturally similar and, of course, geographically close. So these countries include the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia. And these are countries that are growing, they're emerging economies, and they have a need for labor, which, you know, offers a pull factor for people from the Ukraine, while the ongoing conflict with Russia and the militarization of certain regions of the country serve as a push factor out, out of it. In fact, specific to Poland, it has been so beneficial to their economy that a group of scholars and writers behind the influential Polish publication, Gazette Prana, I hope I pr- pronounced that correctly, but this publication published a list of people who had the greatest impact on the Polish economy. The Ukrainian migrant as a collective placed second between the prime minister and the president of Poland. So clearly, you can see that they played a crucial role in the economic development of this country because they filled the gap for a lot of Polish workers. So since Poland entered the EU, a lot of their workers fled for employment opportunities in Western Europe that could have been more u- lucrative to them, but the situation in Poland was actually lucrative to Ukrainians. An indication of the strength of this penetration of Poland's workforce is that more than 1.7 million work declarations were issued in 2017 which is eight times the number issued in 2013, which is only five years earlier. So that's quite exponential growth. And again, this migrant experience in Poland for Ukrainians is reinforced by a low cost of living and, again, a growing population of Ukrainian migrants. As more migrants come and they start developing social networks, they build their community, they start bringing food and customs over, and it becomes even easier for people to migrate. Honestly, it's a very pressing issue that I assume the Ukrainian government is still trying to combat today in 2021. But as we all know, migration is very complex and crosses over a few disciplines, you know. It's economic, it's political, it's social, it deals with ethnic tensions, it deals with religious barriers. And there's probably more that I'm forgetting off the top of my head at this very moment, to be quite honest. But... For the interview, I'm actually very excited to get into it. We talk business, we talk culture, we talk society. And we're speaking with Roman, who was, you know, born in the Ukraine. And he does this podcasting rather consistently. So he has one of his own. He's a digital marketing company. He has a story to tell. He's very eager and open to tell it. He knows his stuff and has some opinions on the world and his experience. So without further ado, let's get into it. with me today i have roman founder and ceo of nova Zora digital host of the podcast the digital savage experience and an immigrant from the ukraine roman how are you doing i'm good thank you for having me on i appreciate it yeah of course thank you for coming on i appreciate you sharing your story and wanting to come on the pushball factor so i guess we can start by reviewing where you were born and then where you currently live Yep, so I was born in Viv, Ukraine in uh, 1984. I came to the U.S. in 1990. Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union at that time. It gained its independence in 1992. I came over 
with six uh, family members. We went through Vienna, Austria, Rome, Italy, and then ended up in New Jersey. Um, I was, I don't know how, uh, supposed to go to San Mateo, California. So I always think like the East Coast, West Coast dynamic, how I would have turned out in terms of the variables if I went to California versus New Jersey. But currently I reside in New Jersey. Yeah, as a New Yorker, I think you would have turned out very differently if you were raised in California. But that, that's just me. Yep, I mean, in terms of hobbies and interests and stuff like that, I mean, I do have some family out there, but it's just like a totally different vibe. I've been out there a bunch of times, but it's, it's completely different. You know, it's definitely different, like what you can get exposed to. Yep. So going off of that, you were very young when you made this migration journey. So I guess, is there much you remember of your childhood in the Soviet? You just mainly remember traveling or was it kind of New Jersey where a lot of your memory in childhood kind of starts? Um, I remember stuff. I've been back twice. So I think uh, I, I've been back as an adult. So um, in in high school and went right when I graduated college, I went back in 2006 and in 2008. So it was one of those things where obviously a lot of stuff, because I was young, I forgot, but when I was in those specific places, like my memory, you know, tied to that location and all the stuff kept coming back to me. But I mean, I remember where I lived, um, family members, I remember kind of the structure um, in terms of like how society was, like somewhat remember like KGB and situations like that mm -hmm. um, and persecution, uh, different kinds. Uh, my family went to church. So like under communism, technically, like you're supposed to be subservient to the government and they don't recognize religion or God. So, you know, people had rights taken away, being shipped off to labor camps, uh, being tracked and stuff like that. Um, waiting like in bread lines for a few hours with my mom and then like you said it came over here right into kindergarten which was a good age because it, I think it helped me assimilate a lot faster and learn the language and kind of I lost the accent in like a year or two and the way your brain is programmed if you learn a language um, before a certain age you don't retain that accent so obviously my mom and my grandparents, my aunt, my dad have been here just as long, but they all have accents. So I think that was one of those things that, you know, if I had an accent, I had an accent, but it was kind of cool to be a really a native English speaker, really learning it from, you know, age five. You know, you really got to learn it from the ground up. I guess in that position, did you have to be a translator for your family a lot or let's sort of act as the English liaison or were your family pretty versed in English? Uh, nobody knew English. My mom actually and my uh, grandparents spoke German and uh, Ukrainian and Russian and Polish, but not English. So they actually, when they came over here, they uh, both of my parents had like two jobs and then they went to night school to learn English and they learned English and picked it up fairly quickly, obviously. Uh, grammatically there was still kind of some errors and, and the accent sometimes was hard to understand but you know they learned out of necessity and you know picked it up fairly quickly makes sense if i got a yeah out of necessity that's a good point that you brought up because you don't have another option when you're living in that country i mean we we settled in like a community that had a lot of uh ukrainian speakers because like the dynamic of ukraine so western ukraine is i guess more patriotic and speak uh Ukrainian fluently and because of the Soviet Union the eastern side of the country has more ties towards Russia so they sometimes speak Ukrainian understand Ukrainian but prefer to speak Russian so there's there's weird language dynamic um, but yeah so we came over here 
and went to a church that was um, Ukrainian speaking also to begin with. So like kind of in that community. So maybe it took them a little longer because they had that situation where like at church and social uh, social functions and stuff like that, they still spoke Ukrainian, but at work, obviously they were really forced to communicate and speak English. But um, like we got integrated into that community and then kind of moved out of that community, went to uh, English speaking church an American church. And, um, you know, I got a bunch of, you know, American friends of, you know, different varying um, nationalities, obviously some uh, international and, you know, foreign as well. And I think that kind of expanded um, my viewpoints and in terms of growing, because I often think if I grew up in Ukraine, like, I wouldn't necessarily be exposed to that many nationalities and people from around the world, like their culture, their cuisine and stuff like that. So I think settling in New Jersey, like New, Jer- New Jersey, New York tri-state area, it's like a different, it's like a melting pot, obviously. But whereas like if I settled in the Midwest or something, I wouldn't necessarily have that rich experience. And it exposes you to a lot of different kinds of people, cultures, religions, you mean, it's a melting pot for real. So off of that, like, was it specifically religion and church? I know you've mentioned that a couple of times. Was it that the main driver for your family? So, like, the the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, Gorbachev had, like, the whole, like, perestroika mindset, like, lessening restrictions, and at that point, starting to let people out or immigrate out. Um, In terms of, like, what we were formally leaning for, one of the reasons was religious persecution, but we did have a sponsor. So at the time, you had to have someone sponsor you in the United States, so we had a distant family member. A sponsor basically takes, you know, financial responsibility for you for a duration amount of time. So I think we stayed with them for like a few weeks and then we got a two-bedroom apartment for all six of us but they basically to the government state like if anything happens they're responsible for you at that time that was one of the only ways even if you like kind of won or got approved for a visa to leave you still needed a sponsor in the united states that would kind of be accountable for you for a duration of time so why was the United States the final destination? Or was it like always the intended destination? I know you said San Mateo, but I know there are a few countries on the way in transit. Yeah, that was kind of like the, the path also of immigration. So if you talk to anyone from Eastern Europe that immigrated out between like, I would say, um, 88 to 92, they had to go through Vienna, Austria, and Rome, Italy. Actually, when we were in Rome, Italy, the uh, Italian government gave us the option to, you know, give us assistance and stay in um, in Rome, which would have been obviously even a more interesting upgr- upbringing. So we did have the choice to uh, possibly stay in Italy, but we ended up, you know, sticking to that original decision and coming to the U.S. You mentioned the six of us. So who was it that made the journey? I guess what role did you play? Did you have any siblings who were there coming with you? Yeah, my brother was 11 months old um, when we got here. Uh, my mom, my dad, my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side, and my aunt, my mother's sister. Quite interesting, like big brother dynamic. It's just like trying to, I guess, get them assimilated to also a new country, but they also really don't, I guess, know the old country. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's funny because I like crack on my brother because, I mean, he speaks Ukrainian, but he learned Ukrainian here. And I learned Ukrainian, even though I was there for a few years, I learned like to read. I mean, at four I was reading and writing 
um, already and speaking Ukrainian fluently. So when we went back to Ukraine, people didn't think I was, you know, from the U.S. or, you know, I guess foreign to Ukrainians. But when he started speaking Ukrainian, he had kind of an accent. So they were like, you know, where are you from, Canada or wherever? There's a large Ukrainian population in Canada. So it's, it's that kind of um, difference as well. It's interesting how, like, those different accent things, accent pieces can develop. Yeah, he has a he has an English accent when he speaks Ukrainian, um, and he speaks English fluently. But since I learned Ukrainian first, I still can nate. I'm a native speaker, and then obviously English. Um, you know, I don't think anyone has ever said that I have a slight accent at this point. Um, so, but it, it's actually interesting, like being in places and being able to pick out other. Um, Eastern Europeans, because I do understand uh, Russian and Polish too, and somewhat speak it. So just being knowing a language and being in a place and having people like naturally talk because they think you, they don't know what you're saying. And then some of the stuff um, that they say is hilarious. Yeah, I, feel like I don't speak any other languages. I've never gotten to be in those situations, but I feel like they, they can be quite hilarious, especially if, I don't know, they're trying to speak very boldly and openly. Yeah, I've had it like a lot of traveling around the place and different airports and stuff and notice someone from Ukraine or um, or Russia or Poland and what they're speaking. Sometimes like I have like a noticeable, I don't have it on now, but I have like a chain with like a Ukrainian trident that's on the uh, Ukrainian flag or something that like says something in Cyrillic, which is the alphabet um, the Ukrainian language uses, uh, the Russian language use and some other Eastern European countries. So Sometimes people come over and just straight start talking Ukrainian to me, which is cool. But um, yeah, it's I mean I'm I'm fairly like well traveled and international in that sense, so I like having those interactions. I mean, that's cool. I think th those are very fun, like whimsical interactions. So back to like your upbringing, was it like a distinctly bicultural upbringing? Like, how different was your experience at home in a very Ukrainian Ukrainian environment versus in school and in the world in New Jersey? Yeah, at home, it was really solely Ukrainian. And as I got older, it became somewhat hybrid. So like right now, even with my mom and my aunt, sometimes I speak like a hybrid Ukrainian and English. Like I'll have half of a sentence in English, half in Ukrainian. But in terms of like uh, language, in terms of heritage and traditions and like food and cuisine, that was all really Ukrainian. Like. Uh, my grandmother, my aunt, my mom would cook, you know, traditional Ukrainian food. Um, and usually, like, they, they were, like, anti-going to restaurants and stuff like that for a while. <laughs> um, and, and there's some funny things that are, like, literal. So, like, at first, um, when my mom was learning English, we went to the store. And obviously, like, a hot dog, if you literally, you know, have it, like, dog is in the is in the the name of the food so like when she was learning english and the word dog she associated it to like the animal so she thought like that was dog food and asking like people why are they buying that and stuff like that so they're like funny situations where like some of the things are literal and like there was miscommunications on that but at home i was mainly raised like ukrainian culture and then outside of that like i was getting uh you know a taste for uh, American culture and then you know different cultures of like the people that I was friends with as well it makes sense like with this Ukrainian culture did your parents have like a big impact on like your education on career aspirations like that part of your life yeah I mean like I guess different disciplines and stuff like that were important so like music so my mom signed me up for like uh, piano lessons violin lessons 
uh, guitar lessons and it was just like inherent drive like a like a hustle um mm-hmm. if if you look into a lot of uh, unicorn companies and uh, fortune 500 companies um that, that have been founded a lot of the founders are um direct immigrants from eastern europe or you know children of immigrants from eastern europe so i think that mindset being in a situation that was like so oppressive under communism and restrictive in terms of like different freedoms and in terms of like uh you know following your you know passions in terms of like starting a company because even now in some countries in eastern europe like you start a company you may have to pay bribes or if you have a competitor that pays you know the company or the government a bribe to shut you down you get shut down sometimes you get like charges pressed against you for no reason and stuff like that so i think that dynamic is um is very important and i think it's just like one of those things that are ingrained like if you're coming from a tough situation like if you're coming from um like a war-torn area as a refugee or like from famine or some kind of area impacted by something traumatic you have that experience and have that kind of drive knowing where you came from and it's like uh, automatic driver that lets you you know push towards your goals i totally get that i feel like one it builds this kind of resiliency just being a migrant and having one of these journeys in general but also coming from a country that's you know maybe has more shady business dealings or you know has a grittier life i feel like you're more in tune in tune business-wise to like when someone's trying to bullshit you like yeah i mean it definitely like drives you and you have more of a you know a hustle mentality ukraine has one of the biggest uh, black market economy so although um, a lot of the population is poor they still have things like I think everybody for the most part has like land or like a, a plot a plot of land outside of the city if they live in the city and like a village or the countryside where they can plant gardens in the spring in the summer and then they'll they'll like um, bottle everything or like uh, you know do that or store food or trade or barter so like in terms of a country like the people are really resilient with like the stuff we've had to go through in history and you know they get by one way or another it feels like there's been a very a very entrepreneurial spirit of the people from ukraine yeah it's it's actually like a big tech hub too a lot of um tech companies tech startups have found been founded there currently and the, the talent pool in terms of engineers um website designers and develop developers are huge in terms of like competitiveness it's one of those uh, most competitive countries in terms of a pat- talent pool for that globally you know i've heard i've definitely heard like bubbles and murmurs like engineers from eastern europe and all these different things and people like doing their development over there yep i mean it's it's also a good country because most people know english like if you're in that field if you're in a tech field you most likely do not probably know english and probably know german because i mean that's still the biggest economy in europe so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of good to work with because obviously the talent pool globally there's other talented people but getting past that initial uh, barrier of language is tough so like if somebody's great at what they do but you can't communicate with them in english you're going to waste all that time in terms of a translator app or anything else to really get done what you need to get done and convey like anything that you need to get changed or something specific so it definitely helps when you're you know somebody you're working with globally speaks english fluently and for me personally like if i'm working with someone from ukraine i can speak to them in ukrainian or russian so i have that kind of um benefit as well 
I think it's a deeper connection when you speak another language with somebody like multi- you can communicate with them across like multiple tongues, multiple jokes, idioms, all these different things. I mean, if you have you, I mean, when you meet someone or you're networking, like getting a commonality, you're finding something in common is like a building block. So if you have obviously um, you know similar goals or a similar upbringing or language in common, anything you have in common kind of binds you. So like you're you're more likely to uh, you know network with that person, build a friendship. Um, build some kind of business relationship where you have something in common as kind of the foundation of, you know, that friendship. Off of that sort of, you've built this great career for yourself. You've definitely caught this entrepreneurial bug yourself. So it's like, how did this all get started? What drove you down this path? Yeah, so I went to college. Uh, My major was criminal justice. I went to Rutgers University. Midway, uh, I thought about going to uh, the Marine Corps. So if you get a bachelor's degree in the U.S., you can go to officer candidate school in Quantico and basically get a commission as a second lieutenant and go into the military in the Marine Corps as an officer. You get a commission of about uh, 40 people under you to command. Um, and I thought I was going to do that, but I didn't know I had a ulcer that was there for a few years caused by a bacteria called H. pylori. So before I did the pre-ship PFT, which is a physical fitness test to get shipped out to Quantico to train for the duration of time, like back to back summers or the first summer, I couldn't do that. I, like I was coughing up blood, like on the run or whatever. So I ended up not going. And I guess it was a blessing in disguise because I don't know what would have happened if I pushed my body through that training and then senior year i interned with the secret service on a counterfeit currency squad i held the top secret federal clearance had to wait six months to get that approved and then when i graduated uh the the recession hit so state local federal agencies froze hiring so basically i was applying to jobs for months and months got down got depressed couldn't find anything kind of like lost uh value in myself because you know i have this piece of paper or this degree and i thought i was you know, educated and and smart and uh, ambitious, but, you know, nobody will give me a chance. And um, only thing that really kept me sane was go to the uh, gym and kind of work out, clear my head. So I saw somebody I knew from uh, the past in the gym and we struck up a conversation. They basically said, come out to my car. I want to give you something. So after one workout, I did that. So they opened their trunk and handed me a packet about search engine optimization. It was like a 50 page packet. And they basically said, read up on this, go online for another month or two, get you know familiar, and you can start doing that for my business. I was never really into digital marketing or marketing or like the internet or technology or was really techie, but it was one of those things where I did it out of necessity. I had my back against the wall and I really had nothing to lose. So from that, it's going on my 13th year within the digital marketing field. I've had held three director roles on the agency side, uh, worked with Fortune 500 clients, managed seven-figure portfolios uh, up, up to this point, worked with over 600 clients at different companies, and then in 2012, founded my own agency. And I just like the ever-changing kind of uh, field of the information and tactics and the internet ever-evolving. And it wasn't one of those kind of things because I think if I had a a career or role in a industry where it was something that you did that n- not necessarily changed and you don't have to keep learning, I think I would have been a lot bored and maybe would, would have went away into something else. But with um, digital marketing, like new ways to reach your target audience changes, the internet evolves, new social media platforms come around, different techniques and tactics change. So it's one of those things that 
interests me because it's so kind of high paced as well. And really all I really need is an internet connection to really be successful. Uh, so it's one of those careers where you can do anywhere in the world, especially now with, uh, you know, the remote state of the globe. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely a good skill set to have. And that's a very good point you bring up about it being like an ever-changing career path that you have to stay like, knowledgeable on because there's always something happening. Our one company's doing something, a new technology is getting evolved. The internet is just changing constantly, and it's an uphill battle. Yep, and I, I mean, like I said, I, th- I think if I was doing something else, I need something that's kind of fast-paced, and I have to keep learning because I say um, com- complacency is the death of innovation. So if you kind of stop learning, you stop growing, and it's one of those things where like I'm constantly mov- motivated and passion passionate to stay on top of my skills and and stay an expert within my craft. So sort of touching on another point you mentioned in your career, the, the internship with the Secret Service, that's pretty cool experience. I want to know, like, how did you land that? What, what kind of what drew you to that opportunity? Yeah, so in the university, I went to the school of criminal justice, and then they have relationships with different, you know, federal, state, local uh, agencies. And uh, that was one of the options. So, you know, I reached out to, like, the recruiter at the Secret Service and then got a bunch of paperwork and then got assigned a... Um, a person, an investigator, basically, that looks into my background because I needed a top secret uh, clearance because I knew when I was in the field office, basically, like, if you're walking by and you go in certain rooms, you're aware of, like, the movements of dignitaries, where the president's going to be at a certain amount of time, how many people are guarding him, like, his, his movements in terms of, like, paths, like, how he's getting to one place or another. So they did different background checks and made sure I wasn't in any kind of, like, terrorist groups or like radical militias or anything like that so it's one of those things also where you know my friends my family got interviewed so it was quite extensive and um basically i got approved and i interned on the counterfeit currency squad as an intern processing counterfeit currency uh, internally that came to that field office from different businesses because the secret service has a dual role they do investigations for the federal reserve as well as do protective duty which most people know them for in terms of protecting uh, the president vice president other dignitaries and offering support if they come to certain areas if they're assigned to a certain field office so it was really interesting and fun. They uh, actually took the interns out on like range day. So we shot all the guns they use, which obviously for a college student was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Um, and it was one of those experiences that also kind of showed me that I may not want to do that because in a federal agency like the Secret Service, you have an assigned post. So a few years you stay in one post and then you have to get reassigned and at least one time in your career you have to do the protective duty in dc so like the president and vice president the white house and and be in dc in general so then i thought about it as one of those things where like you're moving around so much and if you have a you know start a family or have relatives that may be sick or, or you're caring for or anything like that um the situation in terms of moving that often may not work and if you kind of piss off the the director of that field office they will send you to like anchorage alaska or fargo where there's only one other person in the office and you'll kind of rot away for like years until you get reassigned so i saw that aspect of it and it was very obviously 
bureaucratic because it's a, a federal agency and it started kind of dissuading me from like the notion of that at that point and then like i said the recession hit and then it just forced me to pivot into a different direction it's still a good experience that you learned at least something from yeah i mean anything you do like i worked as a cashier in toys r us in high school i worked at uh manhattan bagel like you know helping people you know making food and you know cleaning and doing cashier and doing construction so like all those jobs you take something out of it you value it and you can utilize it i don't think even like let's say somebody worked in high school or whenever like in mcdonald's or like a fast food place it's still teaching you something. It's still teaching you teamwork. It's still teaching you discipline. You can learn about doing things like schedules and um, in terms of like money counts and stuff to run a business or run like a location-based uh, brick and mortar business. So like you, you take out of a situation what you want it to be. Just because it's not your ideal role or position doesn't mean you'll always be in it or it doesn't mean you should just make the best out of it and learn something from it. You know, agreed. I feel like a lot of people don't realize how like skills they learn build off of each other. Like things you've even learned or realized long ago can just still you can still make connections and make a lot out of it. Yeah, and being in all those kind of fields and and you know meeting those different kind of people and working and interacting with people on all different levels. Like me personally, like when I'm hiring somebody, I value a lot in terms of soft skills over hard skills because I think. With knowledge, you can teach anyone that's eager or hungry to learn. With wisdom, that's based and gained from experience. So like emotional IQ, that's based on all the experiences that you've been through. So the more experiences, the more different situations, the more it molds you in terms of being a better operator, a better leader, having more um, emotional empathy and really helping you understand people that you'll deal with in business or whatever your endeavor is in your life in the future. Reflecting more on like your career and business at all, do you feel like your immigrant identity sort of plays a role in business, or does it kind of just do you feel like it's kind of just there? It depends the situation. I mean, it depends like the the companies or clients that you know I work with. Sometimes it helps me more. Sometimes I have like that connection, like I said earlier, like like commonality. If I'm, you know, have a potential client and they may be, let's say, like from Ukraine or from Eastern Europe, or like they visited the country, you have that kind of commonality and starting point. So it's helped me in that way. Uh, the name of the business, it's Nova Zora, which means new star. If it was translated, obviously the alphabet is different and the spelling because, you, like I said, uh, Ukrainian utilizes the Cyrillic alphabet. But like the name of my business comes technically from Ukrainian. So, I mean, it, there there are influences there. And in current terms of like the logo and the color scheme in terms of the Ukrainian flag and stuff like that, but not like directly like, yes, it's in my core values of who I am and my business, but it's not necessarily like um, I have a lot of international clients that are coming from Ukraine solely because I'm Ukrainian or anything like that. But I mean, there's still like a certain amount of identity in that. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you could incorporate it, like the name and the logo. I feel like I would do a similar thing. It's just fun. Yeah, I mean, I think people spend too much time on stuff like that, especially like I see people getting into podcasting now. They're like, you know, I spent three weeks. I've been sitting here trying to come up with a name. Like a name can be changed. That amount of content and the amount of things that you can do in terms of like adding value to the actual show, like that time you can't get back. So in those three weeks, you could have recorded 20 episodes, went live and starting started to have an impact and have a platform to share your voice and other people's voices. But I think oftentimes people get 
caught up in those particulars and don't necessarily know that in the grand scheme of things that can be changed fairly quickly Mm -hmm. but the amount of time you spend not doing anything you can't get that back you know it's very easy to get caught up by procrastinating on those like vanity things that don't really matter in the long run yep or the logo people get so like it it being perfectionist about a specific logo either your brand your company um what you want like the cover art for your podcast to be and like i mean do what you like get it as best as possible what your vision is now because most likely than not you may pivot in a year two or three if you are if you're going a different direction or you know you feel you're different in terms of your goals and what you're looking to achieve Sort of going off of that, your time here in the U.S., do you engage with the Ukrainian diaspora much? Like, do you, are you able to get a slice of home while living here outside of your family, engage with local foods, you know, interact with the Ukrainian community? Um, like I said, when I first came to the um, U.S. for a few years, I lived in a town that had like a decent population of Ukrainian immigrants that came over around the same time that I did. So I went to school with, you know, a few people and then I moved out, you know, to a different town that wasn't necessarily like that diverse in terms of like ukrainians or you know first generation ukrainians but like i said i've been back twice to ukraine um i speak ukrainian with my family um sometimes like in new york city you have uh coney island you have brighton beach that's like eastern european influence like i'd go down there for like dinner and stuff like that sometimes and before all this you know global stuff global lockdown pandemic stuff happen but um, I still, I mean, I mean, I still try to, you know, ma- maintain my identity as, you know, a first generation immigrant from Ukraine. And, you know, if I, if I get an opportunity, then, you know, for, for me to, uh, express my culture or have other people learn about my culture, like I, I take that advantage. And, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know everything about Ukraine or how big it actually is or its history. So it's like, cool to you know tell people where i'm from in ukraine and you know the history about ukraine as well yeah like what is the common american sentiment about the ukraine i like do you get a lot of questions about like what the capital is what people do is it, if it's different from russia or like, mainly only when it's in the news or yeah i mean ukraine got in the news because of the annexation of crimea and the whole mm-hmm. little shadow war that russia funded and had insurgents go into like you know, two provinces in the eastern uh, part of Ukraine that border Russia. And it's like basically like a stalemate right now. There's no resolution. There's still like a front of soldiers on both sides. But I'm from a city called uh, Lviv. It's on the western side of Ukraine. It's like 40 miles uh, from the Polish border. We speak mainly Ukrainian. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's founded in 750. Um, so it's, you know, a, a medieval city. The architecture is awesome and has a lot of, you know, inspirations. It's, it's like a real chill city in Ukraine and they call it like little, like li- little Rome or little Paris. I mean, there's, um, architecture from different eras that survived like world war ii because a lot of uh, countries and cities in europe heavily got bombed so a lot of that architecture they lost but there's a lot of influences where you see um italian architects built specific buildings there's a lot of plazas and stuff like that you have uh, german austrian influence you have like ukrainian russian and and other things as well in my city and around the country so that's kind of like cool to see as well it seems like a very cool place to grow up. It's very, you know, cultural, a lot of different architectural influences. So it seems like a very 
I guess is that where you went back to when you would travel back to the Ukraine to Ukraine? Yeah, I would. I would fly in there. Um, when I didn't go to Ukraine, I went to Crimea too. Um, from Ukraine and other parts like the mountains, the Carpathian Mountains, like camping and stuff like that. But I've been to a bunch of places, both uh, east, eastern and western uh, Europe. So um, Iceland, uh, France, Germany, Italy, Austria, Greece, Croatia. So all across Europe, I've visited and you know experienced those cultures as well, Czech Republic and other countries like that. Um, even before that and then i went back to visit family and you know the first time that i went back to ukraine i spent the whole summer which was like awesome in terms of like catching up from all that time that i've been in the u.s and you know connecting with people and connecting with my heritage again and then i went back for like three weeks the week after i graduated college which was in the winter which was interesting because summer versus winter they're kind of two extremes because you know oftentimes eastern europe and then past eastern europe russia is known for like being extremely cold in the winter so i mean it, it was all right but you know going in two different climates for two different durations of time one several months to several weeks also kind of impacted my experiences there too you know those i can see how those can definitely be different experiences but at least you can survive a new york winter like a new jersey winter very fine now after you know your winter there yeah my my whole thing is like in anything like i have a mindset in 2021 where and i've experienced it earlier in the past like oftentimes some of the biggest breakthroughs happen in like a time of chaos or discomfort so not that I do it for this reason, but like even now or even in the snow, I take my dogs out and walk my dogs in shorts and a t-shirt. And that's more so for like just like shocking my system in the morning. And like, I don't know if you've ever read like the benefits of like a cold shock or like obviously taking a cold shower to strengthen your immune system and kind of just like, I don't know, it just gives me this extra jolt or boost. And at this point, like I'm not even cold. I guess I'm used to it or like adapted to it at this point. I can see that. I can be one who goes out without a jacket if it's like a short walk. I don't mind it, but I don't think I've intentionally done it. I guess those few trips back to the Ukraine and going in as an adult, finally, you know, actually engaging with the culture, learning about, you know, your homeland. Like, how was that overall? And I guess who, when you went both times, was it by yourself? Did you go with other family members? Did you stay with family members? Yeah, so I went the first time. I went with my brother and my aunt. And my grandparents at that time were going back and forth. So they went from the U.S. back to Ukraine to take care of um, my grandmother's uh, sister that had got Alzheimer's and later passed away, but just taking care of her there. So we stayed in the apartment that we lived in when um, we were still in Ukraine. So we stayed there and then we had... Uh, my family had friends that moved to Crimea from my city, so we went down there, and like the apartment was like right on the Black Sea, so we would just hang out mm-hmm. on the Black Sea and then just do stuff like it's a Mediterranean climate, just like experience the cuisine, you know, the the culture, different uh, tourist attractions and stuff like that, and um, the other time as well. I went back um, in the winter. I went back with my brother and my aunt. 
and my uh, grandparents were were there as well. And then I had family friends and different distant family and stuff like, you know, take us around and stuff like that. But like in terms of public transportation, it's like a, a, a lot better system than in the U.S. if you are in the city. So it was like really easy to get around. And then obviously if I went somewhere else, I would either fly or go with someone in terms of having a car. So like that mobility wasn't wasn't an issue as well. So you had a lot of freedom while you were there. You had, like, local connects. So I feel like you definitely got to make the most of your experience, like your homecoming trip. Your homecoming trips. Yeah, and it, it's it gets to a point, I guess, like, it's weird. Like, if you know more than one language, like, I think in, in English and then Ukrainian and then, like, switch it up. It's I don't know how to explain it. I guess other people have conveyed that that speak, like, you know, two, three, whatever languages. And, like, being there, you have to switch from, like, uh, speaking English majority of time to then speaking Ukrainian majority of the time. So it was, like, a slight adjustment. But then, like, if I really need to or needed to, I could, you know, potentially live there. Obviously, with, like, the global economy, like, uh, the cost of living and housing and, you know, food and everything else, amenities is a lot cheaper than, you know, in the U.S. So, I mean, that that wouldn't have been a problem. But it was just one of those things where... English isn't the primary language there, so you had to switch that the way you processed and 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 thought right when you got there for the duration of the time that I was there. Well, that makes sense. I feel like you have to just kind of like flip your brain off. It's not like there's a switch or anything. Yep. Uh, sometimes, like I get like discombobulated, and then just like look at my wife and start speaking in Ukrainian and she just looks at me or vice versa. So, I mean, it, it does happen where you're kind of, uh, the, your whatever language center of your brain gets a little like jumbled sometimes. So you've accomplished quite a lot in your life. So looking back and reflecting on your migration journey and your life, if you could give advice to any immigrant in similar shoes to you when you first came to the States, what would you tell them? I think like go outside of your comfort zone as fast as possible. Um, and outside of like your native tongue and the country that you're from. Um, I, I feel like if my grandparents and parents moved away from, you know, the, the community and the church I was in, uh, we would have like got further faster, I guess, because there was a lot of people, because obviously if you don't know the language, you're in a foreign place, people can try to screw you over or not give you like tips or hints or like things that can kind of fast track or things you need to know about the law or different documents or things to apply. So I feel like a lot of people weren't as helpful as they could have been to, um, you know, help my, my family. So I think getting yourself out of the comfort zone and really, if you don't speak the language, try to pick it up as fast as possible. Obviously people come here on, um, you know, short time warning. Like if you, you know, you find out you get a visa, uh, and, and you have to, you can come to the U S and permanently stay in like a month. I mean, you kind of got to scramble to get like everything in order, but if you know you, that's your goal, you just start learning the language and speaking it and being as fluent as possible. Obviously, there's places in the U.S., uh, different places of California, where a lot of Spanish speakers just spec, uh, speak Spanish. Obviously, Spanish is a second language in the U.S., but it's like I think you need to take take yourself out of uh, your comfort zone, and um, you know, I guess be humble in situations. There's a lot of people that come here for one reason, but then have to pivot or have to do certain things for a duration of time to get to where they need to go. So I think being humble and, um, you know, taking advantage of any situation that you're handed and having it be a learning experience, uh, I think is key.
think that was well said. I feel like that's the best advice for anyone, really. But especially for immigrants in a new environment, new culture. Yeah, I mean, like I said, mo- most people that come here have that like hu- hustle and ambition. Actually, my wife and I, several years ago, uh, we did Airbnb. Like, we both experienced. So, like, we've uh, stayed in Airbnb in Iceland and in Paris and other places and had great experiences and decided to, like, open up our home just to, like, meet people and learn about them because we're in, like, a central area. We have three universities like i'm close to princeton university and like two other universities where parents come a lot to look at schools and visit and like the national rowing center is like 20 minutes away and then you have a bunch of medical uh you know systems big big hospitals and stuff and and other things in the area so i've had like quite a lot of people and i had people come from um belarus like a year and a half two years ago uh, actually, it was longer. It's probably like two and a half years ago, but they were coming to work. So like they literally like hustled their butts off. So like they stayed with us for a week. And after that week, they found an apartment. Both of them found jobs. They got all their paperwork under, you know, underway. They both got cell phones. They both got like situated in a week. And I feel like people that were born here, like squander a lot of opportunities and just like wait for things and they were just like hungry and got to a situation where most people would like not even get to maybe in a month or longer Mm -hmm. so like i definitely saw that drive that i saw in myself in the past like in them currently you know that's very impressive like for a week in a new country that's a lot to get done and i i don't think i can find an apartment that fast (laughs) Yeah, and it was like I dropped them off. It wasn't like the best thing. They lived in they lived yeah. in the attic for a short amount of time, but it is what it is. You have to do what you have to do. Yeah. So it was one of those things where it's like also not being picky and being able to adapt. So like where I'm from, like in Ukraine, like the apartment buildings are like the old like Soviet blocks like outside of the city, like where mm-hmm. I stayed sometimes. So it's like basically like the projects. But it's worse than the projects because it's like the projects times 10 in terms of size and it's like depressing because they're con- like concrete blocks. But yeah. regardless of like where you're at, like I don't care like if I'm staying and even if I travel, I'm not like big about like the hotel because I'm big about more experiences. So like in Paris, my wife and I, we still stayed in the Airbnb, not on like the main like, uh, 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 you know, um, the main part of the city where like the Louvre and Notre Dame and everything else is just like um, a different part of the city that obviously was cheaper. It was a nice Airbnb. It was like a loft, but like all we really did, we, we, we slept there and that's it. It's not like we're like hanging out just to hang out and admire the room. So like we're out, we're, we're experiencing stuff. I think we were in, um, in Paris for a week. We walked, I had my like Strava walking and like activity app. We walked like 50 miles. So it's like one of those things where, you know, I don't necessarily care where I sleep. I just care about experiencing the culture and everything kind of it has to offer. I get that. I feel like that's the best way to travel. It's just like if you're out and about all day, you're going to be tired and exhausted from walking. You're just, you know, you don't need the best hotel seeing the sights you already saw. Yeah, like, as long as it's like, like I, don't, I wouldn't say somewhat safe, but like if you're, you know, your safety is there, you're not going to get like human trafficked or kidnapped wherever you're going or whatever. And then, you know, it's 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 lit and you have your basic amenities. You have a shower if you if you need a stove or something like that or anything else um other than that like i mean if you're literally going in sleeping showering and leaving like you don't really need much exactly and with airbnb i think it's the best bet because depending on the cost of living you can get a lot more bang for your buck a lot more space 
a lot of obviously the rates are comparable to the country that you're visiting so like sometimes like we would go we'd get like a room for 20 bucks so it was like one of those things and in iceland it's funny because the country has like 350,000 people but like it's one of the low like they have one murder like a year if that sometimes none so like people like leave their kids and like strollers outside and like we we came to the airbnb and they're like and there's a note like come in the door's open so everything's wide open so like really trustworthy really like nice and friendly people so it was just like super different in terms of like uh, airbnb experience you know that would be very jarring to me i've had to be in airbnbs with like three different locks yeah and sometimes like you need that because sometimes you have yeah. a home with multiple bedrooms so you have people coming and going like different guests so mm -hmm. obviously everybody needs their privacy but like you know usually we stayed in uh, stay in a place where it's like a single unit or a single you know apartment or loft or whatever so we don't have to necessarily worry about that no definitely so we're coming up on the end of the interview and i'm going to ask you the flagship question that i ask every guest but is your migration journey over do you see yourself going back to Ukraine and living there, maybe living in another country, or do you think the United States will be your home for, for life? So me and my wife made a impulsive purchase and bought a camper that were, um, well, she wants to remodel it the way she wants it. Mm -hmm. But when um, I, I th we're thinking about selling, you know, I own a home in New Jersey, selling our home and then basically because I work remotely anyway, going on the road and figuring out and exploring like the other states that we want to live in. So like Texas mm. and places like that, because I think it'd be more enriching to really, um, really kind of fall in love with the place that like you think you want to live in. Um, and it may not necessarily be the place you want to live in. So like we may do that uh, for a year, but I am not opposed to living outside of the US. Obviously like stuff going on in the US, like different, uh, you know, um, economy economical factors different obviously what's going on with like lockdowns and things of that nature so like if i need to i you know i'm more than happy to um to move back to ukraine i think if i had to do it again if i was like if it was my choice i would have a or be a dual citizen because i have a, a u.s citizenship i would have a um ukrainian and um a american citizenship because even though like pre-covid the ukrainian passport was one of the most powerful passports now because of like the situation like you know travel from the u.s is you know prohibited in a lot of countries so i think now with the ukrainian passport i think i can get in a lot more places but i mean that's always an option i think i'm like fluid like that so if there's an opportunity if it makes sense if it's like one of those things where it's like you know spur of the moment let's take a year and and, and explore i mean that's definitely an option okay so you're gonna go with the flow but that's really cool sort of exploring the u.s by camper sort of seeing the country for real i think that's the best way to see some of the sites because the national parks and different like monuments and exhibits are very like in the middle of nowhere so Yep. I mean, I've, I've done, well, my, my wife's, a lot of family members live in Nevada, uh, outside of Las Vegas. So we've done a lot of like the Valley of Fire and different like national parks there. And it's like you said, it's in the middle of nowhere. Like there's like mountain lions and bobcats and bighorn sheep and all this other like stuff in nature. So, I mean, it, it helps you like, cause you can s spend the night there. You don't have to go back and go back to the city. Like, I mean, you, you have the freedom to move wherever you, you know, you want to go. 
So with that, is there anything that you want to promote or shout out, or do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, I mean, my podcast is called The Digital Savage Experience. It's an interview format show. I interview people all walks of life from former um, drug lords, you know, founding members of the Medellin Drug Cartel, um, you know, uh, former pro athletes, you know, CEOs, startup founders, really about what makes them tick in their journey and what motivates them and, you know, hurdles they've overcome to get to where they are now. And like I mentioned, my uh, digital marketing agency is called Novazora Digital. I mean, if you want to find me or talk to me, you can send an email through the website or if you Google my name um, or get as close to possible to my last name, it is kind of long, you can find me on um, you know, every social media platform. Everyone check it out. Check out his agency website, his podcast, his really cool guest lined up. And thank you so much for speaking with me, Roman, and opening up about your migration journey. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Of course. All right. Have a good one. You too. Take care.